Okay, welcome to the CRE with Cobalt Banker Commercial Worldwide Podcast. This is your host, Tom Hershey from CBC, with my special guest for this episode, Owen Glide. Today, we're going to talk about 1031 exchanges. And Owen is the team leader of Title I Exchange and Trust Services. Today, he's going to talk to us about something that has been in the news lately. And quite frankly, you may have heard of 1031 exchanges, but you may not be familiar with the intricacies associated with them. So we have Owen uh, joining us to hopefully clear up any misconceptions and set the record straight on tax deferred exchanges. Owen is the VP of Business Development for Realogy 1031 Services and hails from Boise, Idaho, where he leads Title I Exchanges 1031 Department. He helps real estate investors execute IRS 1031 exchange tax-deferred transactions and teaches continued education classes across the country for realtors and industry experts. Owen, thank you for joining us today. This is a great topic, and we've been hearing a lot about it in the news, but it's often pretty confusing. So I'm hopeful that we can clarify what these exchanges are and how they work. So let's get started. How about you kick off by telling us a little more about what you do to educate um, the masses about 1031 exchanges and why you're passionate about it? Yeah, thank you very much, Tom, and excited to be joining you today. Um, We do several 1031 exchange consultations one-on-one, and we're happy to sit down with people and really educate people and meet them where they're at in the transaction and strategy process. Um, but really widespread, we teach a lot of classes through online webinars, and as the current environment's changing, we're able to now do them in person as well. And so love traveling around and really get in front of people to educate people on the 1031 exchange process. Um, really, I got into this industry because I love helping people navigate the 1031 exchange tax code and the collaboration that it takes um, with people sitting down one-on-one to really strategize and find the best exchange solution that coming together and that collaboration effort really is something that uh, I truly enjoy. Uh, When you look, especially in our Boise market where I'm located, we see that the volume of 1031 transactions is super high right now. And what's really cool is you get to meet with a lot of different people within your own environment, market, and community, but you also see how it directly helps the Boise economy and the city throughout just buying and investing in real estate, but also throughout all of Idaho, you can see the expansion of commercial property and investment property through the economy. Great. So, you know, let's start with other than being Section 1031 of the IRS tax code, what exactly is an exchange? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, oftentimes, people know about 1031 exchanges, but they don't necessarily associate it with being part of the Internal Revenue Code. But it is pulled directly out of Section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code. And really, it's a mechanism to defer your long-term capital gains taxes when selling a piece of real investment property, going through the criteria that the IRS gives you, and then eventually purchasing a new piece of real property. And again, in doing so, you defer your long-term capital gains taxes you might otherwise incur. Um, so I, I, you know, you're with title one, um, 
who handles exchanges? Is it done by a title company? Do attorneys do it? That's also a great question. A 1031 exchange technically has to be um, really accommodated by what's called a qualified intermediary. That's the technical term. And a lot of title and escrow companies have their own qualified intermediary, as does Title I, for example. But there is a lot of companies that their sole purpose is just to be that qualified intermediary. So you may find 1031 exchange companies that are not tied to a title and escrow company. As long as they're licensed as a, a QI for short, um, they can help accommodate that 1031. Are there certain property types that this works for or doesn't work for? Yeah, there is. So in order to do a 1031 exchange, you actually have to have a qualified property. And the way that that's defined uh, generally is a property that is investment in nature. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an income producing property. Um, for example, it can be land that would qualify. But then, as you mentioned, it can be uh, hotels and multifamily units as well. As long as it's real property and investment property, uh, you can do a 1031 exchange for it. So I, one of the terms I, I heard thrown out there is uh, like for like. Um, and can you kind of explain what that means? Does that mean I can, you know, if I have some investment, uh, like single family family residences, I could sell those and and buy an apartment building? Or if I sell an apartment building, do I have to buy another apartment building? Yeah, great question. Um, in the 1031 exchange code, as, as you're mentioning, there is a like-kind clause. And that like-kind clause really means today that it has to be, as I mentioned before, real property and investment property. But the type of property is inconsequential. So you can go ahead and sell a piece of land, for example, and purchase a single-family rental. Or you can sell a single-family rental and purchase multifamily or commercial. Um, what we do find, though, oftentimes is that a lot of our clients that sell in, let's say, the commercial space want to reinvest in the commercial space or sell in the residential rental space, want to continue to purchase in the residential rental space, just because that's what they're familiar with and that's what they feel they do best. But there's no actual restriction within the 1031. You can go ahead and commingle the type of investment properties you have. So okay, so let's let's say I'm an investor and you know maybe I, I bought an apartment building for call it three million bucks ten years ago. And right now I'm selling it for, I don't know, it's been a great market. I'm selling it for, for 10 or 7 million. Let's say 7 million. Why would I want to do an exchange? Well, that's a great question. And uh, congratulations for the amount of gain you've made on that property. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 1031 exchange is going to defer the long-term capital gains taxes. And so in a general sense, the money that you receive from the sale can be put into two different buckets. The first bucket that can be put into is called, or what we refer to as the adjusted basis in the property. Um, what the adjusted basis is in a property is what the property is worth for tax purposes. It's separate than like a tax assessed value, and it's really more than anything an accounting figure. Um, and it really begins with what you originally purchased that piece of property for. So I think you had said that you bought it for $3 million 10 years ago. Um, so that would be what we call your cost basis. And then it gets adjusted down for any sort of depreciation you've taken on the property and then adjusted up for any long-term capital improvements you've done. 
So that's the first bucket of funds in a sale is, again, your adjusted basis. The second bucket would be your gain. And how you calculate that gain is you would go ahead and take what you're selling the property for today of $7 million. You could go ahead and subtract your adjusted basis for the purpose of this example, we'll say it's $3 million. And that leaves you with a gain of $4 million. Well, if you chose not to do a 1031 exchange, you would be taxed on that $4 million from the federal long-term capital gains tax rates. Um, in this case, probably a 20% rate, which is the highest rate there is. And then you could also get taxed from a state perspective. So different states have long-term capital gains rates as well, along with um, having to recapture depreciation and any sort of excise taxes that the, the state that you're selling out of may have. When you do a 1031 exchange, you get to defer all of those items. And so someone that might want to do a 1031 exchange um, in, in this scenario would want to do it so that way they could have the equity and the cash that came from selling that property to go ahead and invest in something bigger that might generate a better cap rate, might be easier to maintain, might be in a better location. Um, definitely in this case, that you, this uh, situation, you, you would definitely want to consider doing a 1031. Okay, so I've heard you say a word since we started and I even said it multiple times and that word is deferred. So, how for how long can I actually defer the taxes? Is it indefinite, like you know, for hundreds of years, or is there there a, a time stamp? Yeah, great question. Um, just as a reminder, the 1031 exchange is a tax deferral mechanism, which is different than entirely getting rid of all the tax or having some sort of a tax exemption. So it does imply that eventually, when doing a 1031 exchange you would have to pay those taxes. Uh, what some people do is they'll get with an estate planning attorney or CPA, and they'll look to fight, figure out a way to defer those long-term capital gain taxes indefinitely. And most commonly, this is done by doing a 1031 exchange, holding that property maybe for several years, selling it, and then actually um, adding on another 1031 exchange to create a 1031 exchange chain. And perhaps you do that multiple times throughout your lifespan, and then eventually you're holding a piece of investment property and you pass away. At this point, you can look to do something where you uh, essentially um, in, you leave your property as inheritance to the heirs of your estate. When you do that, let's say, for example, a um, father goes ahead, holds a piece of property for a number of years, passes away and the heirs are his children, they inherit the property, they get something called a stepped-up basis. And the stepped-up basis idea means that if his heirs were to sell that property the very next day after they inherit it, the basis of the property would be stepped up all the way to what that property value is, meaning that they may not have any long-term capital gains taxes if they were to sell it directly after inheriting it. Um, so, 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 so some people will go ahead and defer the long-term capital gains taxes indefinitely until they pass away and uh, their heirs get an extreme benefit from that. And can the heirs, if they were, you know, let's say they held it for a couple of years and the value went up from when I uh, passed away, um, going back to my, you know, previous example, they, they, you know, let's say the value was $7 million when I passed away a couple of years later, it's worth $9 million given the stepped up basis, would they be able to do another exchange or would they have to then pay taxes? 
they could certainly do another exchange. And we see that happen a lot in the industry where um, someone will hold property through multiple generations, find out that it's time to sell that property. And, and yes, they will do a 1031 exchange, in this case, for that $2 million worth of gain. So it just real quick, you mentioned um, depreciation before. I mean, is, is depreciation recapture, is that a, what portion of the equation is that? Yeah, great question. So the depreciation really comes into play when calculating that adjusted basis. Uh, going back to your original example, if you purchased a property for $3 million, and then let's say you've held that property for about 10 years, which is let's say one third of what we call a depreciation schedule, that would mean that we can go ahead and, or we have depreciated, let's say up to $1 million worth of property. The way that that plays into the equation is when calculating your adjusted basis, you take that $3 million cost basis number, and then you subtract the depreciation. In this example, it's $1 million. And now your adjusted basis is 2 million. And when selling that property for 7 million, that would mean that your gain would be 7 million minus the $2 million adjusted basis to equal a $5 million gain. And the 1031 exchange, you get to defer something called depreciation recapture, which if you did not do a 1031 exchange, would be generally a flat rate of around 25%. Um, but again, the 1031 exchange can prevent that from happening. Some people still choose to recapture the depreciation or cer some circumstances uh, do warrant the need to, to go ahead and do so. But for the most part, it does defer that depreciation, depreciation recapture as well. So let's uh, kind of go through the process here. Um, you know, I, I'm getting ready. Let's go back to my previous example again, getting ready to sell my apartment building. At what point in the process should I, first of all, when should I research the exchange? And at what point do I actually need to um, hire or work with um, an exchange accommodator? Sure. Yeah, we we always recommend that if you're contemplating doing a 1031 exchange, even if your property isn't listed, go ahead and feel free to give a call to a 1031 exchange accommodator just to kind of go through the process, learn exactly if that property is, is able to go through a 1031 exchange um, and start to strategize early on. One of my uh, kind of favorite circumstances that happen each year is right around Thanksgiving time, maybe the beginning of December, uh, we'll get an influx of calls, right? Of people saying, looking into a 1031 exchange and needless to say, we'll find out that they were sitting around at Thanksgiving and someone's brought up um, that they're selling a piece of investment property and another family member will say, oh, have you looked in 1031? And then they'll look online, uh, find some good information, but ultimately, it's always the best real value when you get someone on the phone and can talk about your specific scenario. So we always recommend go ahead and, and talk to someone early in the process just to make sure that the property that you're selling for one can even qualify for a 1031 and for two to make sure it's the right situation for you. Okay, so I am in escrow, property set to close, why don't uh, let's walk through the steps what next sure so once that property that you're selling 
um, you haven't executed a contract, that's generally when it would go to title and escrow. And we as the 1031 exchange accommodator will need to go ahead and get involved before that sale actually closes and records. What we'll go ahead and do is reach out to the title and escrow company that you're using for your sale and coordinate with that closing team to make sure that the 1031 exchange is indeed put in place. Um, we coordinate with them, send them all of our 1031 exchange documents, let's say, to include in their package, or in some cases, we'll send them electronically directly to the client to sign. And really what we want to make sure is once that sale closes and records, that not only is the 1031 exchange in place, but the closing team knows to send the QI or the accommodator the actual proceeds from the sale. One thing that can be an absolute killer of the 1031 exchange is if the funds go into the actual client's accounts. Um, in the 1031 exchange, it's extremely important and mandated that the 1031 exchange accommodator actually has control of those funds from the time of close. If they go to the client, unfortunately, the 1031 exchange would be blown at that point. So it is important to have us coordinate with that closing team or that title and escrow company to make sure that those funds are, are sent and dispersed appropriately. Okay, so you've got my funds. What do I do next? Once that sale closes and records, a couple critical timelines really begin. Um, so we go through title and escrow, we coordinate with that title and escrow team. We're at the closing date, the client maybe comes in and signs all the documents. And then once that sale closes and records, those funds come to us. And then the, the first timeline begins. And this is a 45-day identification timeline. Um, this is actually the toughest part of the 1031 exchange at the moment. And as in certain markets, there's just not a ton of supply, or maybe the client has a specific criteria of what it is that they want to purchase. And unfortunately, that property is not available. But the 45-day identification timeline is 45 calendar days for the client to go ahead and identify to the accommodator which property or properties they may want to purchase. Um, the reason this timeline is so important, though, is because after day 45, on day 46, they'll be locked into their nomination, meaning that, unfortunately, if a property came up on day 50 of the exchange timeline, they would not be able to purchase it with their 1031 exchange funds if it was not previously identified. Um, in the identification process, clients can go ahead and use, actually, there's three different methods of identifying that they can choose from. Uh, the first method, Tom, is, is known as the three property rule, and that was pretty self-explanatory. A client under the three property rule can identify up to three different properties. Most of the time, the people that are using the three property rule are looking to sell one property and then, let's say, purchase just one property. And what they'll do is they will put down their number one option, let's say on line one for the three properties, and then a couple backup options. Because as I mentioned, after day 45, on day 46, they become locked into those nominations for what they are choosing to identify. But the other common way to identify is known as the 200% rule. And the 200% rule will allow a client to identify as many properties as they like. However, they're restricted to the total value of the identified property. The total value has to be either 200% or less of the gross sales price. So let's say you sell a piece of property, back to your example of $7 million. Under the 200% rule, they could identify up to $1.4 million worth of property. 
which could look like in theory seven two hundred thousand dollar pieces of property and then they could choose to purchase any number of those seven properties in order to um, really satisfy the 1031 exchange and then just i did mention there's a third method of identification and that would be known as the 95 percent rule often tom when we get into consultation with clients uh, we rarely bring this one up because it's so rare to see it actually used in our industry at the moment it's extremely risky the 95 percent rule would allow a client to identify as many properties as they like for any price point but they are required to purchase at least 95 percent of what they've identified and if they don't do that, um, their 1031 exchange could be seen as void as they didn't identify properly. That sounds like a lot of rules. So, you know, one, one thing I, I wanted to clarify, um, so I'm selling my $7 million apartment building. Can I buy seven $1 million apartment buildings or does it all have to be in one asset? That's a great question. Yeah, so in the 1031 exchange, really the goal is to purchase property of greater or equal value from what you sold. So if you sell for $7 million, you're looking at purchasing at least $7 million worth of new property. But that can be done by either purchasing one property of over $7 million, or it can be done by purchasing, as you mentioned, seven $1 million properties. Either one would be perfectly fine. But again, it goes back to those properties that are purchased need to have been previously identified. Okay, so I've identified, um, you know, in commercial, oftentimes we're gonna have, you know, contingencies and, and I'm gonna want a property inspector and, you know, pest control, and I'm gonna wanna walk the property and, and get my partners, if there are any out there. Um, how long do I then have to close? Is it going to be a shorter time frame or is it still allow me ample time to be able to get all my due diligence completed? Sure, so after day 45, which is the identification period, again, on day 46 is when they get locked into their nominations, but then they have an additional 135 days to actually close on any previously identified property in order to satisfy that 1031 exchange requirement. But as you mentioned, Tom, there's, you know, in today's environment and a lot of our markets throughout the country, uh, a ton of people are finding it difficult to really secure property. And one thing that, or a couple different things that we find clients doing is making offers contingent on the sale. Um, they'll go ahead and, you know, submit an offer to buy a new property, but saying that first their sale has to go ahead and close, that way they have the money. Uh, some people will go ahead and actually get into contract for a new property, their replacement side, before their sale actually closes and reports. That's a little bit risky, just as in a traditional exchange, the sale needs to close before the purchase. However, if you time it right and you are confident in both transactions, you can go ahead and make sure that it does happen that way, just from kind of organic timing. And so the purchase would close sometime after the sale, but you could lock it up to make sure that you don't have the 45th day expire on you with nothing to identify. So I, I this was going to be one of my questions. Um, is that what I've heard called a reverse exchange? 
Yes. So the reverse exchange allows a client to actually purchase a piece of property before they sell. And so in the context of our um, just discussion, right, we've been talking about selling a piece of property before purchasing a new one. But in the reverse exchange, you do things in reverse order. So you purchase a property before you sell. In the reverse exchange, it's much more complex. And the reason for that is because the 1031 exchange accommodator or the qualified intermediary, I'll use those two interchangeably, um, they actually have to go into title for most commonly the property that is being purchased. And when we go into title for that piece of property, what that means is, let's say a client needed financing in order to purchase the property originally because they're selling closed. We are then needing to work with a lender that is under the at least understanding that the reverse 1031 exchange is one, a mechanism that is approved by the IRS and through the Internal Revenue Code. And then they have to get through their underwriting requirements because they're going to be underwriting the borrower and their financials. But then we tell the lender this 1031 exchange company is actually the one going into title. And so on a traditional deed of trust, there would be um, a little bit of a disconnect because the person that's entitled to the property is not the person that's getting the loan. Okay, then that brings up another question. Um, are there restrictions as far as what entities can do an exchange? For example, be it an individual, a single asset partnership, a multi-asset partnership, a corporation, are there restrictions or is it really open to anybody that owns property? Yeah, great question. It's um, really any entity that's a taxpaying entity that can do a 1031 exchange. So that can be an individual, a married couple, it can be an LLC, a trust, an S-corp, a C-corp. All of those different types of entities can do a 1031 exchange. But I'll give you a small caveat here, Tom, is um, every now and then, and it happens generally once a year, I get at least one call that's uh, from, let's say, a client that's looking at doing a 1031 exchange. One of them specifically stands out to me where I had a client call and they asked me, I'm looking to do a 1031 exchange. I own this property. However, I don't believe in paying taxes. As a matter of fact, I haven't even filed a tax return one day or one year in my life. And uh, I, was, I was probably on the call in this case, um, you know, kind of awkwardly quiet for an appropriate amount of time trying to figure out how to respond. But I will throw that caveat on there is, uh, in order to a 1031 exchange, you, you really should be filing and, and paying your taxes uh, on an annual basis. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, is there like a central repository for exchange properties? I mean, where, you know, I'm selling my property. How do I find a property to exchange into? Is there like a, a website that you go to that lists properties or... Another great question. Unfortunately, there's not a great repository for like 1031 exchange investment properties. Um, and every market is, it varies. It's a little bit different. Different cap rates could appear in markets. Really what you want to do as a real estate investor is partner with a broker's professional in order to find the exact property that you're looking for. Um, that broker's professional will know what the market mandates, what a good cap rate is, what a bad cap rate is, what a good area um, in town would be really that broker's professional will be key in trying to find new replacement properties. 
Excellent. You know, one more question, um, and I've heard this come up here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area a couple of times. Can you do an exchange in cases of eminent domain? Oh, yes, that's a great question. So in eminent domain, the 1031 exchange isn't necessarily the best vehicle to do a type of exchange on a property. In eminent domain, there's actually a different type of um, exchange known as a 1033 exchange. And the 1033 exchange is used when your property is seized by eminent domain or some sort of forced conversion. And it allows a lot more flexibility than the 1031 exchange does. So I've talked about you know, the different ways to identify, you need to purchase greater or equal value, um, the different timelines. In a 1033 exchange, you can have two, arguably up to three different years to go ahead and reinvest. Um, you can actually hold the funds and you don't need to use a qualified intermediary to accommodate a 1033 exchange. It just offers a lot more flexibility if you are finding yourself in a position where you have a property that um, is being seized, let's say by eminent domain, the 1033 exchange could be a great solution for you. And really the best thing for them to do is probably talk with their accountants or a real estate professional in order to figure out what it is that they wanna do and what kind of their um, two to three year plan is in the future. Excellent. So, you know, to kind of, bring all this full circle um, back to my original comment about us hearing a lot about, you know, exchanges uh, in the news. Um, not to get too deep in everything that's going on, but, you know, what is it? What's going on out there? Why are we hearing about uh, 1031s right now? Sure. Yeah, there has been a, a good amount of media in comparison to prior years, but I, I will submit to you that the 1031 exchange tax code is part of the tax code that is looked at pretty regularly uh, to see if there's any changes that need to be made to it, any revisions that need to be made to the code um, itself. One of the, the latest changes to the 1031 exchange code was back in 2018 from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And what that change in the tax code did was actually um, eliminate 1031 exchanges from personal property sales. Now, again, as I mentioned, they can only be done in real property. Well, today there's a ton of rumors out there of what they could be looking at potentially changing or altering about the 1031 exchange code. Uh, we don't have a ton of clarity on what that would be at the moment. But yeah, some of the rumors that have been flying around are increasing that tax rate from, let's say, 20% for the highest tax rate all the way up to about 40%. Um, they, there has been some talks about uh, not allowing um, the benefit of stepped up basis that I mentioned before, where someone can go ahead and inherit the property and not have uh, long-term capital gains tax, let's say if they sold the day after. There's been some talks about, in, this, in that case, going ahead and potentially taxing the property at the time of the owner's death. And then there also has been some talks about uh, limiting the benefit of the 1031 exchange to just $500,000 worth of gains. Um, this would have a significant impact to the 1031 and commercial real estate industry, but it is a little bit too early to tell whether or not um, any of those changes can actually or will actually take effect. And at least based on some, some prior uh, history, again, it comes up a lot, but more often than not, uh, there hasn't been 
huge significant changes in the 1031 exchange tax code for the last, let's say, 100 years that's been around. Um, are there any bills with Congress to affect any changes right now? Or are we still putting, you know, uh, or looking at the news media and, and everything we're hearing? Is it still just rumor and, and really putting the cart before the horse? There's a significant amount of that. Yeah, there's no bill that has been created yet. Um, so I guess really we're we're getting a lot of the information from news outlets, the media, uh, different reporters trying to figure out whether or not any sort of tax change would affect the 1031 exchange code. Excellent. Owen, uh, how do our listeners contact you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, please feel free to go ahead and email. We have Realty 1031 Services, which is our uh, national brand that can go ahead and help 1031 exchange transactions all over the country. You can go ahead and contact us over email at exchange at real1031.com. And you can actually contact me directly uh, all the way in Boise, Idaho from my number of 208-287-5347. Great. As a reminder to our listeners, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to and like the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast on the place where you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out our older episodes. 